1: This is the Church Politics Podcast brought to you by the ANN Campaign, hosted by The Crux and The Call. And we are just thrilled to be back. I am Michael Ware with Justin Gibney. Justin, it's it's been a while, brother.
0: It has been a minute, ANN Camp, uh, a real minute. You know, the Church Politics Podcast took a hiatus. but We are back with the cutting edge political commentary from a biblical worldview. I'll tell you, Michael, it feels good to be mic'd up again back in the lab. We got the new album, art, new production. We got Bo York yeah. on the ones and twos, and I'm, I'm just ready to get into it.
1: Yeah, it feels good. Uh, a lot has happened in our personal lives, in politics. There's a lot to catch up on. Let's just dive in because we got a lot to cover and only a limited amount of time to do it in. But folks, you can expect it here, the Church Politics Podcast every week uh, moving forward. And let's just jump in. We're in the middle of there have been multiple uh conversations about shutdowns, and we had a an extended shutdown since we broke for the podcast. And and now that we're coming back, there are new conversations about another potential shutdown, Justin, over the same issue over this a border wall that was a, a key campaign promise of Donald Trump. Some would say one of the few concrete policy proposals that came out of the Trump campaign. His voters uh, identify the wall with Trump. And even though Trump is sometimes vacillated behind exactly what he means by a wall, it's difficult for him to move away from a wall in general, however he wants to define it. The problem is that this wall uh, has now taken on great symbolic meaning. Democrats said that the wall is is a symbol of, some would say a symbol of hate, of exclusion. And it's going to be fascinating to see how this moves forward. We had a, a significant shutdown last month that really hurt a lot of people. And to see the machinery of our government be even tempting, be even teasing the fact that there might be another one is significant. The latest news as of this recording is that negotiations have sort of broken off. They're at a bit of a stalemate. But Justin, do you think Democrats are doing the right thing by resisting uh, funding for a wall up to this point? Uh, Do you believe the shutdown worked out for Democrats last time around and and it would work out the same way Uh, if the government shut down again. What do you think the sides are thinking as we approach another potential shutdown?
0: Yes. So so I was thinking about it a little differently in that I think we're all losing. Right. And so as long as Democrats or Republicans are like, yeah, we won this one or we no, we all lost because, number one, we had a 35 day partial government shutdown. We had 800000 employees who are out of work. It cost us eleven billion dollars during this shutdown. We have until February 15th to get something else done. And negotiations have broken down. Right. So if we're looking at this from a policy standpoint about how can we move forward, then everybody is losing. And it's just a bad deal for America generally. You know, I, I said before that if this goes into another government shutdown, I really think that our politicians, our federal you know, elected officials should not get paid either. And I can probably I can guarantee you that that would speed up the conversation if they weren't getting their checks either they need to be in a room, they need to get something done. One of the other things that's kind of bothered me too, Michael, is that there's so many commentators. Like every elected official is a commentator and really we just want you to make laws. Like of course we want you to we want you to communicate with the people. That's great. But we don't need more commentators. Let the journalists and commentators do the reporting and get in there and get something done. Everyone's trying to cover themselves. Obviously Trump has put himself out there. He want he wanted the billion for this border wall, because this is one of his main campaign promises. He wants to go into 2020 saying, I got done what I said I was going to get done. And so he's going to take a stand on that. At the end of the day, we need to get this done. This is one of those issues. And you know, as well as I do, when it comes to immigration, whether it be the wall or anything else, both sides have moved the goalposts so many times. Most of the Democrats that have been around for a while have voted for fencing. And that's not to say the wall is good. But to act like it's something that you would never, ever consider is just not true. I do worry. And I I think we're seeing a split in The New York Times was reporting that both parties are kind of experiencing some internal division because you have the far left who wants to ensure that the immigration and uh, and customs enforcement doesn't receive any more funding. Right. Which could throw everything off. Then you have guys like Stephen Miller, who's an advisor to Trump who may just reject anything that's reasonable because he's such an immigration hardliner. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have Trump moving almost six thousand troops to the border. You have a lot of stuff going on. If we think of it as a partisan win, either way, if we go back into a shutdown and don't get, you know, some serious immigration policy out, then that's why we're losing. and We're going to continue to do so.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, there were some reports that Democrats are considering giving $2 billion towards fencing. you know, I think that's something that Democrats need to be open to. Uh, I've also made the argument that Democrats need to re-pick up in, in a serious way, even though the chances are so small, the conversation about comprehensive immigration reform for several reasons. One, because we need comprehensive immigration reform. On policy grounds, we need b- broad legislation that doesn't push off some of these central issues. But just second to that, politically, it, Democrats need to be able to put forward a position that is responsible and simply saying, forcing a government shutdown. Uh, and again, you know, I, I think Trump is forcing it with, you know, the job, if they have any job, it's to make sure that the government is just functioning. That's right. But Trump is going to be Trump. And like you said, Democrats have voted for fencing before. I'm sympathetic to the argument that the symbolic value is important given who's advancing it what he's going to claim if it gets done. So I'm I'm actually sympathetic to the to the idea that now this this kind of debate has symbolic meaning about what America is that is important and will have concrete impacts. Like just today in the reporting there was a whole debate about uh, apparently one of the one of the big issues is Democrats want to reduce the number of beds in detention centers to 40,000. Republicans want it up to 52,000 under the idea that uh, Democrats want to force Trump to focus on deporting or putting criminals, particularly violent criminals, in these detention centers and not going after folks who have done nothing wrong. But I think the average American is like, wait, they're... Like either way, there are either 40,000 beds that are for criminals in in this country or 52,000. It's just a messy issue. Democrats need to get back to a comprehensive plan that has the rightful claim to take care of this issue, to take care of the 12 million undocumented immigrants that are here, to make sure that illegal immigration won't take place unheeded after. Uh, there's a path to citizenship for the 12 million that are here. And right now you just get a whole lot of no's, a whole lot of sort of welcoming language, but that that doesn't deal with the problem at hand. And I just don't think that's tenable for Democrats. Uh, I'd like to see comprehensive immigration reform be something that they could run on, be something that they could force Trump on. And the last thing I'll say, Justin, is, I'm not sure that there should be a concession on the wall just to get the government running because if Democrats concede on wall funding just to get the government running, Trump will keep on going back to this well. What I would put on the table is some form of uh, extended DACA protections. If DACA is extended in a way that isn't isn't shallow that is meaningful, if we move forward, if we expand we know that the Trump administration has drastically cut the number of refugees that are accepted. If those numbers went back up to sort of historic norms, then maybe you fund the wall. But short of that, th- this isn't something that sort of Democrats should be able to be taken hostage on because there will be no end to it.
0: Yeah. To me, that's a no brainer, right? It's a no brainer that, OK, if you want the, the def- if you know you want wall security, then you've got to point to DACA. And so responsible people should be coming to the table. I know they had a, a um, basically a, a group of 17, a, a bipartisan group of 17 legislators or lawmakers that came together. And that should be a no brainer. If you want security on the wall, you got to do something with DACA. And this is the point where Republicans have to stand up and say, hey, President, hey, Stephen Miller, maybe you need to get out of the room or be nowhere near what we're doing we have to offer something legitimate because we cannot shut down the government again and we need a real solution to this and something that's reasonable to to force the hand of both sides to say, are you going to be reasonable or not? Sadly, with all the 2020 posturing and all that, the comprehensive immigration reform, which I know both of us are for, I'm not really optimistic about it. I'm sure you aren't either, but that's really what they should be trying to do. If it, If everything was fair and if we were really trying to look out for the for and not for our careers, but really for the what's best for the people, that's what they would be doing. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. So at very least, yes, you can do some border security that makes sense, uh, but you got to give uh, up something with DACA and that would just be a, a smart way to go.
1: Right. I mean, instead of Democrats being the, the ones saying no, you put comprehensive immigration reform out there. Maybe some Republicans say yes. Maybe Lindsey Graham puts pressure on on Trump. But I agree that's a long shot, but at least at least you're putting forward a solution of your own. All right, folks, when we get back, we're going to be talking about abortion laws in Virginia, in New York. We're going to be talking about the surge of scandal uh, going through the Virginia Democratic Party, and we'll be talking 2020. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Justin, Virginia Democrats were feeling fantastic that they had made major gains in both the Commonwealth's House of Delegates and Senate in the last elections. They controlled all of the major statewide offices, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. And folks have to understand, Eight years ago, 12 years ago, that would have been unheard of. So Democrats felt like, finally, we have control of the levers in this state. But this year, uh, really just over the last couple of weeks, a Virginia Democratic Party has been wracked by serious scandals. The first shoe dropped when Governor Ralph Northam, following some controversial comments he made about a Virginia abortion law that was up for debate, which we'll talk about in the next segment. It was leaked to the press a picture of his medical school yearbook that featured on it two figures, one dressed in blackface, the other in a KKK costume. Neither are totally identifiable, but a lot of people think it's it's a bit crazy to think it's it's your yearbook page but it's not you in it but but that is the governor's claim and there's been a bit of evidence uh, loose evidence to that he's been putting forth to to try and prove that claim regardless uh, in a press conference which was you know one of those moments that you wouldn't be able to script it was just so outlandish and surreal uh, he said that he was not in the photos in the yearbook but he did dress in blackface as Michael Jackson for some sort of dance contest. Just real quickly, pretty soon after that, and there's been a lot of speculation and accusations about whether it was retaliatory or not, allegations about Justin Fairfax uh, engaging in sexual assault were brought up, first in relation to one woman, and now a second woman has come forward. Justin Fairfax denies those allegations and has asked for the ability to actually have an investigation as opposed to there being conclusions made about the case. And then Mark Herring, who was the attorney general, who would be the third in line of succession to become Virginia's governor if both Northam and Fairfax had to step down, said that he also had dressed in blackface when he was younger. Justin, I know you've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Can you walk through a bit of why these events have been so significant? What they tell us about the history of Virginia and the history of this country, and, and what you think the path forward here is—not just politically for Democrats, although it's a real serious issue. What what you do when you have your three top statewide officials under serious controversy, but also for the for the country, for the the nation, on these serious hot button issues that are boiling in our public dialogue.
0: Yeah, sure. So I'd also mention that obviously Northam is refusing to leave office now, and he's saying that he wants to use the office to further racial reconciliation. That's right. Um, He also did an interview with CBS News, I think it was, where he uh, referred to slavery as indentured servitude, which I guess is some kind of euphemism. I don't know. You know, at this point, this isn't about... The way I'm looking at Northern right now, this isn't about helping black people. Uh, This is about maintaining power. So we need to be serious about that. And and it's sad to see what people will do to maintain power. But I think that's what this is about right now. And before we get into this, I want to say something now. I, I don't want to assume that our audience understands why blackface is so offensive and why it's been so dangerous historically. Uh, One of the things that I've learned through traveling with the Ann campaign, going to speak to Christians of different cultures all over the nation was that you cannot assume that people are aware. And if we're going to be gracious about issues, when we find out that people aren't aware, you have to give them the opportunity to be aware. Now, whether they accept that opportunity or not is up to them. But I do think, you know, you have to try to give people an opportunity to become aware of kind of issues and just especially when it comes to race, just historic issues in America. So when it comes to blackface, uh, I want to give you some historical background on that. This comes from minstrel shows in the 19th century, which was a form of comedy where white performers would mock black culture, they would mock black bodies with all kinds of crazy exaggeration and buffoonery. And what it did essentially was it made black people characters. And characters, once you make someone a character, At that point, it's easy to justify that they don't deserve to be taken seriously. It's easy to say they don't deserve rights. Uh, Their pain isn't real to you and it's not worth acknowledging. And they basically become objects of pure humor, objects of burden or just pure disdain. In short, what blackface did to black Americans was to dehumanize them as a people. It might have been comedic. But blackface actually shaped white America's perception of black people to a certain extent. Uh, It was not harmless. Black people died. A lot of black people died in part because of because their humanity was disregarded um, based on the same sentiments that were evoked invoked by blackface. And it gets even worse, Michael, when you think about or consider how blackface was used in something like the movie Birth of a Nation, which was an extremely racist film that came out, I think, in 1915 uh, that had a huge impact on the country sociopolitically in a real way. And it was somewhat based on the lost cause of the Confederacy. If you haven't heard about that, I don't have time today, but look up the lost cause of the Confederacy. And what it did was it depicted black people as mindless. And it showed them with this Violent sexual appetite that threatened white society. In this movie, the Ku Klux Klan was treated as heroes who were necessary, kind of defend off the threat of this black menace. And large numbers again of black people died because of these views, including someone like Emmett Till. Right, and the vestiges of these views are still with us today. It's why many believe sometimes black people are treated differently uh, by. Law enforcement by uh, in medical, you know, when when we have medical issues, all those things. So it's nothing to play with. It's more than just a comedy and a joke. It actually impacted how Americans or white Americans saw black people And, and to some extent how black people saw themselves, because there were no other positive images out there. You just had these very offensive images that were mockery. And so I want people to understand that. And, and to me, that's why Northam, I mean, he handled this probably in the worst way possible, coming out, uh, apologizing and then coming back and saying, no, it wasn't me, although I've done it before. It, it was just silly. I, I think the whole thing, I think he made himself look ridiculous. I think if for no other reason he should step down, because there's no way that I think he can be effective right now. And he's done something that he, he just didn't handle it the right way. If you're truly apologetic, you don't have to come back and say, oh, my bad blah, blah, blah. You're not being thoughtful about it. I think he needs to step down. Um, like you said, Virginia Democrats in general are just in a sunken place. Justin Fairfax is facing these two accusations. Some are saying, um, and this is just a rumor mill, but some are saying, because it is a coincidence, that these accusations came out from people in the nor- northern camp to get the heat off of him. Uh, if that if that's the truth, that's even more reprehensible. And we just I, we just have to hope that justice is done, whatever it may be, And this is the time where we have to have integrity, Michael, to have one standard. Right. We can't have a standard for our opponents and then uh, have a standard for our side. Right. There has to be one standard and everyone should be included in that standard, which involves due process, due process. We're talking about investigations. We're talking about hearings. And so we know the NAACP is called for due process. As you said, Fairfax is called for an investigation. That should—that's what should happen in every case, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, whether they're black, white, whatever. There should be due process involved because we want to get to the truth.
1: I appreciate that, and and I, I guess you know we we should talk about Herring too. And it's interesting to think about the, you know the different ways in which Herring's apology was received and and, and why and, and Northam's apology. I mean, I think there were some significant differences Herring brought. His incident uh, to the public on his you know on his own accord to the best of our knowledge that I'm sure he was concerned that it could be made public but but there's no indication that would have been made public immediately that he was you know pressured to do so by you know a threat or something like that. He also used, used pretty strong language that seemed to reflect a lot of the criticisms of, of Northam's apology. You know, I, I will say, just I, I was interested to see a, a poll come out over the weekend uh, showing Northam's approval rating still significant at a, at a pretty healthy number among Democrats. I believe the number was something like 58% of African Americans in Virginia accepted his apology. And uh, there can be all kinds of discussions around why that might be, how tied it is to concerns about whether Republicans got into office, although on on the flip side of that, some would argue that it's just another sign of how partisan and a tribal society has become. Here's a question I want to ask, Jess. How deeply felt are the kinds of concerns that are made by writers and those paying attention to history, uh, the history that you just laid out, how deeply felt are those concerns among the general electorate? Do you think Northam understands something about the public that we don't? And that's why he's not stepping down? Does he understand that he has a greater ability to survive this than what seemed to be the case when you know all of punditry was calling for him to step down?
0: Yeah, so I th- what I think he understands is the worst case scenario is he's out of office. <laughs> and so he's saying, why not fight this? you know, I have a, I'm the government, I'm the governor. I still have a bully pulpit. I still have this mechanism, uh, you know, in my hands when it comes to Virginia politics, at least on the Democrat side, why not use it to the, to the fullest extent and make sure I could actually have a career. If this actually works, I have a career. I have more time in office. I can fix this. Three years left in this. Right. If I just step down, then I'm done. So I, I think he's saying, why not try it and I'm sure everybody that's working for them, they want to maintain their job. So they're gassing them up to say, no, let's try to see if we can stay in there. We're going to put everything we have to, to stand in this. We're going to get the best um, political strategist and all that stuff. Let's give it a crisis
1: shot. communications firm. Yeah,
0: let's so give it a I, shot. I, I,
1: I know you saw. So the, the, there was a, a story that, that came out. I believe Darren Sands, who's an excellent reporter over at BuzzFeed, came out. That suggested both what what you already raised earlier, Justin, which was this idea that Northam will pursue a racial equity platform throughout the rest of his term as governor. Also included that Northam's staff had him reading Roots and Ta Nehisi Coates, uh, which you know, first of all, if you have to announce it if if, right. if, if you got to put it in the story. This second of all is just such a. Such a manipulative thing. And I agree with you on the Northam's ability and, and what's motivating this. You know, I, I'd add another layer to it, Justin, which is if he did stay in office, whatever the motivation is, maybe some good policy would move forward because of it. But that policy would always have under it the idea that this was not done for the common good of the people of Virginia. This was done for Northam's personal political survival. And we need to think as people who care about good governance, who care about democracy, who care about justice, whether that's the kind of way racial equity po- policies should move forward. Unlike, you know, frankly, Ralph Northam's opponent in the Democratic primary, Tom Periello, who had a, a long history of engaging on these issues. But uh, Northam doesn't necessarily have that. And so I I'd be concerned about the impact and what the backlash would be and what the message would be if this was the way racial equity policies advanced in Virginia, Uh, a Commonwealth that that certainly could use further discussion and action on these issues.
0: Yep, I agree. So we'll we'll see how how it ends up. Uh, At the end of the day, it's up to the the voters of Virginia, uh, what they want to do. I know there are people calling for him to resign still. I think he's going to stick it out. And if they don't force it, he will be the governor in 2020 and beyond. Wow. Let's take
1: a quick break. Well, we'll obviously, we're going to follow what's happening in Virginia uh, and keep y'all updated. There are so many layers to this now, so many interests and motivations. Republicans see an opportunity to perhaps turn back the tide of uh, support for Democrats in the Commonwealth. There's just a whole lot to dig through. And and we're going to keep you posted on how this all develops. All right, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We'll be back after this break. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And just in in the last segment, we mentioned that part of what sort of facilitated and what sort of catalyzed all of this with with Northam was actually a conservative, I believe a conservative medical student who was there with Northam, who was upset about Northam's defense of uh, this proposed legislation in Virginia to pretty significantly expand and remove restrictions on abortion rights in Virginia the Virginia legislation i think got a lot of attention even though it had been proposed in previous sessions of the general assembly because it is similar to legislation that passed in New York in the last few weeks New York and we'll, we'll talk about the legislation a uh, part of the history here even though New York is a a pretty significantly uh, liberal state, Republicans actually controlled the state Senate for a while. And so they were able to hold up this legislation that Democrats had been pushing for a long time. And some believe Cuomo was, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo was, was actually okay with that. But after Democrats took back the state legislature, Andrew Cuomo announced his support for this Uh, this legislation, it kind of had full go support. Basically, and we could dig into the weeds a bit on this, but basically both of these pieces of legislation seek to remove any, really any restrictions on abortion that have been put in state law, including what some call late-term abortions, abortions in the second and third trimester. This legislation passed in New York, similar, oddly similar to what happened after the Supreme Court made their decision in Obergefell in the gay marriage case, when the White House was lit up in rainbow colors. Andrew Cuomo, I think, inspired uh, from that. He, He lit up, I believe, the Empire State Building pink to celebrate this law passing in New York. Justin, what does it say about the state of our Political discourse around this very difficult issue of abortion that sort of the the middle's kind of been hollowed out politically speaking, in other words, we know that the vast majority of American people, seventy percent are somewhere in between those who want to outlaw abortion entirely and those who believe it should be legal in uh, virtually any circumstance, but doesn't seem like our politicians are following the will of the people in this regard. Do you think Virginia and New York indicate a a new era of abortion politics in this country?
0: Absolutely. What this shows us is that when it comes to certain issues, two or three issues, that special interest groups are running the show, period. Let's take a little, you know, let's put a finer point on, on this, what this legislation does. In certain circumstances, it allows for an abortion up until delivery, and then it allows non-physicians to conduct those abortions, among other things. So what this means is that if a mother's life or health is in danger, she can pretty much have an abortion at any time. Now, somebody would say, well, life and health in danger, that's, you know, that's pretty serious. Well, the problem is the problem with that standard is that by the very the very nature of pregnancy and delivery puts a mother's health in danger. Right. So the very nature of it, there's some danger to it. And so that's pretty much a wide open standard that goes all the way up to delivery. Now, if you want to judge whether that's extreme or not, this is the most extreme abortion policy in America and one of the most extreme abortion policies in the world. Progressives often point to Western Europe for their policy. Hardly anyone in, in Western Europe has a policy that goes this far, not even close. There's only maybe seven other countries in the world that have an abortion policy that's this extreme. And, and two of those in that company are China and North Korea, and we know what they feel about human dignity. So we need to think about that. Democrats have moved the goalpost on this issue over and over again. We went from abortion should be safe, legal and rare to Governor Cuomo telling us we should celebrate late term abortions. We should clap about it and be happy about it. And here's my here's my problem. No one's standing up to say anything. Right. So a a lot of a lot of folks, a lot of Democrats always say, oh, OMG, I can't believe Republicans support Trump. OMG, I can't believe that they won't regulate guns. How do they look themselves in the mirror? Those aren't bad questions. But here's my question to you. How do you look yourself in the mirror? If you if you support our asylum about these abortion laws, which are completely extreme under any standard historically, then you understand exactly why Republicans do things that you think are extreme, too. It's because right now, Americans are not thinking they're just going along with the mob that says if our political opposition doesn't like something, then we should take it to its most extreme. And this is brain dead politics. That's that's exactly what it is. The great majority, as you said, Michael, the great majority of Americans are against late term abortions. They should never be legalized if, if most people are against them. And even if most people are for them, they shouldn't be legalized. But how does this happen? Right. This type of crazy legislation gets through because we allow interest groups, again, to run the show and we go along with it as long as it's pissing off our opposition. And that's insane. Right. It's the same thing what happens with sensible gun laws. It's the same thing that happens when we support the most uh, outrageous and extreme candidate. It's all about pissing off the other side, but nobody's really looking at the policy. They're just going along with the talking points of these interest groups. And it's really, really sad. But I would say for any Democrats who's, who's wondering how Republicans do what they do when you think they're doing something extreme, you should understand them now because you're doing the same thing.
1: You know, President Trump dug in on this in the State of the Union, just a few lines. It was it was stark language. And of course, you know, we could talk at another time. And we have talked on the show about how he's not exactly an authentic messenger for the pro-life cause. But the opportunity has been presented. It's the same opportunity that he took in the 2016 race. And like you said, Justin, instead of Democrats responding by saying, we believe abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. We want to see the abortion rate go lower in this country, lower than the historic lows that it reached under President Obama. Instead, they're doing all of this tap dancing and all of this contortions to somehow explain why, for instance, they can't sign on with what Senator Ben Sass is doing, which is, as far as I could tell, a pretty straightforward bill that... Yeah, you could be afraid of what kind of door it opens later on, but if our politics was all about worrying about what door is open to, then what, well, that's why you're there. You say you say yes to what's right in your view, and if you think something down the road isn't right, then you say it's not right then. But who, who can't say that a baby born shouldn't be given medical attention? <laughs> that, that seems like a pretty straightforward reasonable decision to make. And and yet the, the the real concern is that if there's any recognition that we're talking about life here, people are worried about how far that'll creep and just what that'll reach into. And, and and
0: that itself should should give people some pause. Yeah, it absolutely should. Yeah, here would be my last statement on this. For the and let me just narrow the conversation down to Christians on either side. For the Christians that don't think that haven't spoken out on this or don't think it's necessary to, or even for some who have defended it, where will you draw the line? At what point is enough enough? Or are you driven just by the As long as your party can give you talking points that help you pass the blush test, as we used to call it, Right, then you're good. I just need, just give me something to say that makes it sound halfway credible and do whatever you want to do. But at what point as a Christian do you say, enough is enough i don't care what talking points you come up with i don't care with how how bad you say the other side is this is too far and if you can't do that you haven't thought through your politics enough to really be competent right because this is really in 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 some instances a miscarriage of democracy if 70 if 70% of americans are not okay with this and it gets passed and they can be in public celebrating this and not one nationally recognized or prominent Democrat steps steps up and says, absolutely not. This has to stop. When we're at a point when that happens, don't be mad because the other side is extreme. Both sides are extreme. I mean just just Joe Manchin. Just Joe Manchin stood up.
1: So so just Joe. We, just yeah, said. just Joe. Just Joe Manchin. Uh as far as as far as federally elected politicians. Look, we we've we've talked on this show before this is a very difficult issue people who wanna talk about this issue like there aren't rights at tension like like there aren't principles at tension like it's just clear cut easy said and done they're lying to you they're lying to themselves on the other hand as justin said there comes a point when an insistence on nuance and an insistence on kind of both sides in the situation Uh, really allows the conversation to to drift pretty far. Uh, When when you're lighting up buildings uh, pink like you just won the World Series, they also passed that same week significant protections for undocumented immigrants, but there was no cultural celebration around that. There's no, you know, they're pushing minimum wage legislation, but no buildings are getting lit up about that. It's here where one of the most tender issues that faces the public where there's this desire on both sides to just sort of stick people in the eye, to just sort of do end zone dances and and to, to take things to the furthest extent you can in a way that is not considerate or considering basic questions of social cohesion, basic questions of public opinion, and more most fundamentally, just stepping back and asking what is right <laughs> does, does this sound right? Would I apply with the you know that Northam statement you put that language that kind of language in any other context, and you never hear a Democrat talking like that. Never hear a Democrat talking in that way about the most vulnerable and yet in this context, the kind of rationalization that happens because of interest groups like you said, justin. Because of how coarsened and how hardened our positions have gotten, that we can't even look at the facts. We we can't even we can't even look at the morality of the question, and it, right. it's not right. And Christians uh, and, and all people need to be demanding better of our politicians than using these most tender issues as a way to fundraise money, as a way to uh, pr- provoke the other side, as a way to get the biggest piece of the pie
0: that you can. That's right. And and I would say I'll end with this. Even if you're pro-choice, there's nothing to be celebrated in this conversation. Right. Even if you said, OK, this is necessary in some instances. What are we celebrating and applauding and and jumping up and dancing about? I mean, it's sickening. And to look at how many smart people we know that just go along with what whatever the party wants to do. I will defend the indefensible as long as my party wins. I haven't even thought through this whole thing. It has to be right because my party did it and I'm just going to go along with it. It's sad.
1: All right. We're going to take our last break. When we get back, there have been quite a few 2020 announcements since we took our break for, from the Church Politics Podcast. But now that we're back, we're going to uh, at least open up, up the conversation about how 2020 is looking. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, we're going to have way too long, really two years to be talking about 2020. And so we can space this out, take things as they come. But we thought our first episode back, uh, we should at least have an opening conversation about 2020. Uh, We've seen a number of candidates jump in officially. Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, Sherrod Brown is looking at it. So is Joe Biden. So is Beto. (laughs) We're going to have a, I guess one word for it is a robust Democratic primary. And of course, we're going to see if a, a substantial primary opponent comes for a Donald Trump on the Republican side, or or if Donald Trump is basically going to have the party nomination to himself and be able to focus on getting ready for the general. But Justin, what have been your opening impressions of how the field is shaping up, how some of these candidates are developing their case for the nomination, and whether it's implicit or explicit, and for different candidates, it's, it's a different... But implicitly, at least in all of this, our candidates vying to be the one to take down Donald Trump. What have been your impressions so far?
0: Yeah, so I I think I've been impressed with how Kamala Harris has just kind of like a built in constituency and she came out pretty strong. You know, I think this is going to turn out to be a race to the left. And we kind of saw that with the new Green Deal, as a lot of them jumped on that new Green Deal before they even knew exactly what would be in it. And uh, as something I was reading today said they may regret that because that new Green Deal was was pretty far out. But you are seeing folks really just trying to get their narrative straight. Okay, what's my posture? Who am I? Why do you know why should people want to vote for me? I saw you had a tweet that said Elizabeth Warren knows why she's running. I think she does know why she's running. I think while other people are kind of searching to see what people want, she knows why she's running. You can agree with it or not agree with it. I think she knows what she wants to do. And I give her that above some of the other folks because it seems like a few others are just kind of fishing to see okay, what's gonna stick right right, right. and of course she's doing some of that, but I think she has an idea, okay, I want to focus on this economic stuff, I want to get this fixed. That's not to say I agree with her, but there's something to knowing why you want to run instead of kind of and that's what happened to Hillary right and in, in a lot of ways, fishing around the whole campaign, trying to figure out okay, what am I running for, what do people want to hear uh so that's one thing, Klobuchar I think appears to be in many cases the adult in the room uh why a lot of people were posturing and doing extreme things just to be seen she kind of kept a very adult responsible as bipartisan as i guess you can get these days they get these days uh posture that impressed a lot of people um and so we'll, we'll just have to see how that turns out but this is going to be especially when because the attacks really haven't started coming. I mean, somebody came at uh, Klobuchar about her staff and issues she had with her staff. But, you know, it really hasn't gotten as uh, as heated as it could. Now, Tulsi Gabbard uh, came out and before she announced, she actually pushed back as, at the party based on some of these uh, religious tests that they were throwing at these judges. And Gabbard basically came out and said, no. If you're a Christian, if you're a conservative Christian, if you're some other religion, you cannot ask people questions about their religion when it comes to being a judge. That is unconstitutional. And I know that caught a lot of Christians eye by her coming at, out that strongly for religious freedom against these religious tests that folks shouldn't be asking. Of course, you know, one of the candidates continued to ask that uh, weeks later, but that caught a lot of people's eye. It's going to be a, a tough race. I do expect in some instances, it will be a race to the left on a lot of these issues. You see someone like uh, uh, AOC, everything she does, these folks are jumping on because she's just a powerful, she's just a force in the party. And I think people want to be associated with her and what she's doing to some extent. Hey, the energy is on the left and uh, we'll just have to see how it goes.
1: Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting, right? So Pew had a poll come out uh, last month that asked Democrats, whether the party should be more liberal or more moderate. And 54% of Democrats said the party should be more moderate. And so, uh, you know, something I just want folks to be attuned to is, look, the conversation on Twitter is not the same conversation that's going to be had in these primary and caucus states. It's not the same conversation that's happening in America generally. We're going to see, I think, in 2019, a lot of these candidates running to get elite support, to get some of the social media momentum sort of behind them, to rack up the advocacy group support. But at some point, they're, they're going to have to go and actually talk to people on the ground who aren't so engrossed in the day-to-day of politics and aren't don't have uh, like a developed ideology. That's going to be interesting. I mean, people always think both the Republican and the Democratic parties are going to nominate you know the the folks to the fringes. But Republicans nominate John McCain. They nominate Mitt Romney, a, a governor from Massachusetts. Democrats nominated John Kerry. Nominated Barack Obama. Nominated Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, so you're right, Justin. A lot of the energy, a lot of the the, the the free media is on the side of of the AOCs and and of you know those pushing the envelope on the left. It's going to be interesting to see if Amy Klobuchar, if Joe Biden, you know, I think Kamala Harris has an opportunity to run towards the the center. She has some interesting history in her background where she might be able to do that. Same with Cory Booker. I know we were both looking at Deval Patrick, who's since said he wasn't going to run, but would have been interesting for him to get in, Mitch Landrieu. So we're just going to see, I don't, I'm not sure this is going to play out in just the way everybody thinks. For instance, Michael Bennett, a senator from Colorado who's been looking at running in in this race, recently said, uh, you know, I'm not sure if Medicare for all and taking away private health insurance from 100 million Americans is the best opening offer that the Democrats can make. And this is what a primary is for. I'm actually a, a bit hopeful, Justin, that a lot of the tensions and internal party disagreements that were papered over by Barack Obama being such a sort of transcendent political figure that we might actually have a Democratic primary that that actually puts some of these disagreements out into the open. So I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a great primary.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I think one of the things we have to consider though is we can name you know who's gotten elected before, but then we have to also name that Trump got elected and came out of the primary. Uh, we we also have to mention that Hillary won um, and had a lot of help from the party to win. But she also basically mirrored almost everything that Bernie was doing. Right. So it is somewhat of a different time. If if the middle is going to be heard, they're going to have to mobilize a little bit more, because when you're looking at what most of these candidates are saying, it is leftward. Like I said, almost every candidate jumped on this new green deal before they even knew what was in it. Right. Because they didn't want to be outflanked to their left. And so I'm, I'm with you. I hope that's the case. There's certainly enough people. To make that the case, but people in the mi- middle have to mobilize too, and you have to find a way we have to find a way to be as bold in the middle as people are on the outside. And there's, there are ways to do that. But you, you've got to make your, your voice heard. If somebody runs against Trump, Republicans need to do the same thing. They need to get their voices heard. And really what the X factor in all this or the kind of sleeping giant in all this is, is the uh, mother investigation. Right. So we can talk about all this stuff. Is Mother going to come? You know, what's going to happen in in that time? What does he have? Are there going to be charges? We'll just have to see.
1: All right. Well, we're, we're going to dig into these different candidates and how this thing develops in future weeks. We hope you'll stick with us uh, with the Church Politics Podcast. It's been great to to be back. We're looking forward to continuing the conversation in 2019, we're so grateful for our listeners and, and excited about all that lies ahead. Uh, we hope that you'll continue to check out the dot which is uh, the digital platform for the and campaign. It's where we host uh, now this podcast and other uh, new, fresh content, and, and we're we're just thrilled to. Uh, to be kicking off the new year by continuing
0: with this podcast
1: and this conversation. Justin, do you have any any final words?
0: No, just stay strong and represent and Camp. Uh, we should have some uh, really good stuff coming up, some helpful information, and also some ways for you to get involved. Stay tuned.
1: All right, folks. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed week. Everything
0: good came out of Nazareth. This is groove. Tell me, I'm the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. with
1: a